here in 1 Corinthians, and this is what we read. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Thus says God's word. You may be seated. I got to tell you, um, those of you that know me will know this because it kind of oozes into my talk um, that I am fascinated by the created world. I love it. I love um, to watch like National Geographic style documentaries. I love to learn about the created world. I love to observe it, ponder it, learn how it works. I love viewing the wonders of this world that, that uh, a wildlife photographer was in the right place at the right time to capture. I, I love to visit zoos. I love to visit aquariums and get up close and personal with diverse animal life. One of my favorite things in the world is when I'm hiking and I happen upon a critter that I've never seen in the wild before. That's just the best thing in the whole wide world. Um, and all of this, when this happens to me, whether at a zoo or on a documentary or, or if I'm hiking, all of that stuff, seriously, I'm kidding you, I kid you not, sparks genuine worship in me. When I see the creation that God has made, I go, it blows my mind that anybody could deny the creator when you see the creation. It's incredible to me. I wonder what it must have been like. If you can imagine, if you can time travel in your imagination, I wonder what it must have been like on that sixth day of creation in the primeval world when the first birds were filling the skies and the mighty oceans were raging and they were filled to the brim with every kind of life. And, and perhaps you could hear in the distance a lion uh, just releasing its first mighty, terrible roar. But of all of that that we would have witnessed and experienced in that first uh, portion of the creative world, I don't think anything could compare, nothing could compare to being there and, and seeing the first, firsthand the construction of the first man and the first woman by God. Can you imagine that, what that would have been like? Genesis, you guys have heard this passage before, but Genesis 1.26 describes the moment when God declared his intention to create man. He says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In Genesis chapter 2, we get more detailed information on how this took place. Genesis 2 verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Then further on down in the chapter, in verse 21, we read, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, Denny Burke 
points this out. You know, the Bible's designation for humankind is man. God created man in his own image, but that does not in any way leave you ladies out. Denny Burke points this out in his book. He says, the text indicates no difference between the male and female with respect to their being created in God's image. Ladies, look at your husband and say, I too am created in God's image. The woman's image bearing, listen, this is important, does not derive from the man, nor does the man's derive from the woman. The man is, is in no way uh, more an image bearer than the woman, and the woman is in no way more an image bearer than the man. God assigns this dignity to both of them, irrespective of their sexual difference. Amen? Amen. But, <laughs> but what does it mean... Essentially, at the base element, what does it mean to be created in the image of God and after his likeness? The Hebrew words that are used there in Genesis 1 for image and likeness refer to something that is similar but not identical to the thing it represents. So therefore, the fact that man is in the image of God and in the likeness of God means that man is like God and man represents God. When talking about the similarities between humankind and God, there are many things that could be pointed out. For example, the Bible says that God is spirit. And we too, the Bible clearly teaches that we too have immaterial spirits within us, enabling us to relate to God in prayer and in worship and praise. If you really connected with God this morning, because in, in this moment of worship we just had, it was because your spirit has been made alive in Christ to be able to do that. We also have immortality. God has, meaning that every one of us will live forever. No one is going to dodge judgment, either of the righteous or unrighteous, simply by dying. We will all live forever, immortally. Furthermore, we can think like God. We can think and reason logically. We can use complex language. Some of us even know multiple languages, which just blows my mind because I can barely speak the English language. But, but some of us can do that. We're also creative, being, creative beings like God is. We have the ability and the capacity to make and appreciate art and music and literature and technology. We've been even also given the ability to procreate, literally creating new life where there was none. Additionally, just as God is one, but consists of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when I see you, I may see only one unique individual. But you uniquely and distinctly consist of your physical body, your soul, which includes your mind, your will, and your emotions, and your eternal spirit. So in a sense, you two are three in one. Do you see the image of God in these things? In all of creation, there is not a single living thing with all due respect to your doggies and your kitties and your guinea pigs. In all of creation, there is not one single living thing outside of humanity that bears or shares the dignity and honor of being made in the image and likeness of God. Not one other thing 
No plant, no animal, no celestial body, nothing. Only humankind bears the image and likeness of God. Kind of makes you want to puff out your chest a little bit, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Therefore, now listen, this is my statement for the day. Because of this, all human life is valuable to followers of Jesus Christ. All of it. Every bit of it. This is why the defense of something like abortion, which snuffs out preborn life, or euthanasia, which discards lives that are deemed useless or obsolete, those things are incompatible with a true profession of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Completely incompatible. A true Christian always defends the right to life from the moment of conception until natural death. And this is not, listen to me carefully, listen to me carefully, this is not a political position. It's not a political position. This is an affirmation of all people's inherent dignity as image bearers of the Almighty God. That's what it is. Sadly, however, in this story of creation and this dignity that's given to the, to the man and his wife, we see as we go on in the story in Genesis chapter 3 that God's vice regents and his image bearers rebelled against the benevolent rule of their maker and they turned to, instead of worshiping him, they turned to the worship of themselves and the worship of a, of a vast slew of different idols. And before you think you've dodged that bullet, Every single one of their offspring to the very present day has followed suit. Every single one of us. See, positionally, positionally, the human race still bears the image of God. But they are not as fully like God as they were before. There's been something that has been changed, something that's been corrupted, something that's been polluted. This is evidenced in both the remainder of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation as well as in human experience. The moral purity of the human race that they had at the very beginning is gone. And they no longer simply reflect God's holiness. Their intellects are corrupted by vanity and by fear. Their relationships are driven by selfishness and lust rather than self-sacrificing love. We can no longer, no longer can we understand truly the image of God simply by observing humanity as it now exists. But rather we have to cast our gaze back to the garden, back to that very first moment when God created the man and the woman and he looked over his work and he said, it is very good. But we can't look at life as it is now, people as they are now, and say, oh, there it is, there's the image of God. It's corrupted, it's polluted. It's like looking through a dirty window. You, you, you know there's something on the other side, but you can't really make out exactly what it is. But here's the good news. When the time of Christ dawned, humanity once again got a glimpse of what the perfect image of God looked like. The perfect model of humanity. Paul says of Christ, in Colossians 1.15, he says, He is the image 
of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What does that mean? It means that everything that at the fall was lost by the human race as it pertains to the image bearing, the, the, the bearing of the image of God, everything that was lost was displayed and demonstrated by Jesus Christ in his perfect life. All of it. He said, this is what it was supposed to look like, folks. This is it. His communion with the Father, his perfect love for everyone else, his his moral purity, his power to, to alter the course of people's lives with just his word, all of that was demonstrating what it truly meant to be in the image of God. And John speaks of those who saw, who witnessed this perfect life, or who heard of it later like some of us have. And he said this in John chapter 1, verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who took him into themselves, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. See, the right to become children of God means a restoration of all the benefits of being created in the image and the likeness of God. The perfect life that Christ lived, guess what? He lived for the benefit of those who would come to believe in his name. He obeyed for them. He, he, he took the responsibility of obeying for them, and by doing so, he obliterated the power of their disobedience. I don't know about you, but as someone who has believed on him, received him and believed on his name, that makes me pretty happy. I get pretty excited about the fact that Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ obeyed for me, that he obliterated the power, the death dealing power of my disobedience by his obedience. His burial or his brutal death, rather, was substitutionary. In nature. Now, what does that mean? It means that he died the death that we deserved. Did you know that you deserved the death penalty? And not just the death penalty where someone injects something in you or flips a switch. No, 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 no. You deserved a brutal, public, shaming death just like Jesus got. It was substitutionary. See, what he did is he changed places with us. He took the full penalty of all of our sin and guilt and shame on himself. And the result, listen, here's the good part. The result is that you and I can now progressively grow up into Christ, returning daily, step by step, to the fullness of the image of God. And that's good news. See, you can look at yourself in the mirror and you cannot like what you see. You can see someone who struggles with, with uh, everything from faith to basics of morality. You can look at all of those things. You can worry about all the corruption that you see in your flesh. But the promise of the gospel is that you don't have to stay there. You can actually progress into the image of Christ, may I prove it to you from the Scripture. This is what the Bible says, Colossians 3, 5. Paul is addressing immorality, and he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Raise your hand, if you're bold enough to be honest, that you have some stuff that's earthly in you. Anybody around here? Okay, a few of you. Majority of you. 
And then in case you weren't sure that that applied to you, he gives you a list. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, oh, which is idolatry. On the account of these things, Paul says, the wrath of God is coming. In other words, God will not continue to turn a blind eye to the people engaging in these activities. He will judge them. We talked about that last week. And But listen, here's where he turns a little bit of a corner. In these church, in these Christians, you two once walked when you were living in them. But now... Something's happened. Now something has changed and you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self. Let me tell you something. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have undergone a wardrobe change. You've undergone a wardrobe change. You were clothed in the filthy rags of your own righteousness, according to Scripture, and you were given the spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ to wear as a robe. You have undergone a wardrobe change. And so Paul says, Paul says that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self. Now listen, here's the key, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator it's creator you are returning to your original design as a believer in jesus christ straight back to the garden of eden to the image of god the bearer of the very image and likeness of god himself that's the goal that is the end goal of the gospel being renewed after the image of its creator. It speaks of this ongoing reclaiming of the full image of God, an action that grace is working in the life of the believer. It's this renewal that evidences that one is truly saved. I I think I say this every single week. Get used to it. That saying a prayer one time because you had a a spiritual heebie-jeebie does not make you saved. It does not make you saved. Getting dunked in a tank, a tank of water doesn't make you saved. None of those things are sufficient to save you. What happens to make you saved is when Jesus Christ calls your name in the tomb you're lying in, and you come to life spiritually, and you say, He is Lord and I am not. And when you make that declaration, there is evidence in your life that you have made that declaration. Second Corinthians says this, it says that we all, all of us who are believers with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We know from these passages we just read that grace is working this transformation in us. But how does God accomplish that change in us and on what basis? Let's return to this morning's text, the two verses we read, and let's discover the answers to these questions. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says this, Or do you not know? Paul's setting this up as almost a rhetorical question like, What? This amazing thing has happened and you're completely living as though unaware of it? Hey, don't you know? Don't you recognize this awesome, life-transforming fact? 
that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God. Ta-da! It's incredible. It's an incredible fact. It's the kind of fact that if you really believe it, if you apply faith to that fact, it will absolutely wreck, renew, and restore your life. Absolutely. The first thing that we notice in this passage is that this body is not just housing my soul and my spirit, but I learned that as a believer in Jesus Christ, the very Holy Spirit of God, the one that hovered and brooded over the waters from the moment of creation, has taken up residence right here in this same body. Wow. In the 21st century... We probably can't appreciate the revolutionary nature of this declaration, this truth on the first century mind. See, the Greeks had been saturated, uh, or they had saturated rather, the Roman Empire with the philosophies of Plato. And and this had a huge effect on the way uh, that people of that time viewed the concepts of the body and the spirit, the material world and the immaterial They believed that the material world was sinful and inferior. And this was communicated in three different ways. First of all, they believed that existing things, temporal, material things, are imperfect copies of the eternal, the the perfect forms, with the concept of good being the highest form. Secondly, they believe that the knowledge of the empirical world that we can see and touch through our sense perception is misguided. Like you can't really know anything just by seeing what is, what is real and tangible. And, and that all of that should yield to philosophical truth, the deeper abstract truths behind the things you can see and feel. And thirdly, they believe that through philosophy, the soul grasps these higher forms, but the, but the body is a hindrance to be able to do that. Therefore, salvation consists of the soul's escape from its imprisonment from the body. So there's this belief in the essential badness of the material world, of uh, of the body. It's a hindering thing. And this gave rise to two heresies in the early church, the first of which was Gnosticism. And Gnosticism taught that spiritual realities are inherently good, while physical realities are inherently evil. Now, what, what ramifications do you think that had on the teaching of the early church? Well, if, if spiritual things are good and physical things are evil, the Son of God could not have been embodied. He couldn't have become flesh and, and, and maintained a physical body. And so they concluded falsely that he only appeared to be a man it was like a magic trick an illusion so that we would understand similarly asceticism took all of those uh, philosophies and they encouraged the denial of otherwise legitimate physical pleasures how did that play itself out they did it by eating and drinking only certain foods and beverages by things like sleeping on the floor on the hard floor and foregoing even marital sexual intercourse they would have lost me right there and and and, and much more things if i can be so honest they 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 they, they gave up all of those things because they thought by denying those physical things, they, they would be much more spiritual and much more open to this mystical world. 
that was good and the rest was bad. But, but, here, but here comes the gospel. The gospel comes with the revelation that the body, listen to me carefully, the body itself isn't evil at all. That's what the gospel teaches. And you know how it did it? It did it in three ways. Watch this. This is amazing. The Bible proves, the, the gospel proves rather, that the body is not evil in these three ways. First of all, the Son of God did in fact take on a physical body. Second of all, even, or, or he has declared, the Son of God has declared that one day he will resurrect our physical bodies from the grave. And thirdly, he says that even now, as we just read, our bodies, our physical bodies, serve as the actual temple of God and not some building in Jerusalem. This is the temple. This is the temple. And that is, and that is, and that is, that's the temple. It's not some building. See, the context of 1 Corinthians 6, the larger context of the, where we found our passage this morning, is sexual immorality. Paul is saying, listen carefully, Paul is saying that when a Christian commit, commits degrading sexual acts, he's literally defiling the temple of God. Literally defiling the temple of God. One of the most horrifying events in the Jewish memory is in 167 BC when the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes built an altar. They were under uh, the Seleucid rule, Jerusalem was. And so Antiochus uh, went into the temple and he built an altar to Zeus on there, which um, uh, he, uh, on that altar to Zeus, he slaughtered in sacrifice a pig. Now, if you know anything about the Jewish religion, that is the most profane thing that they could imagine. A foreign god, a pig, which is unclean, getting sacrificed in their holy temple. And, and, but here's what I want you to know. That temple that was profaned so, so horribly by Antiochus Epiphanes is no longer in existence. It was destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans, and Jesus said not one stone would be left on another. And so what does that mean? It means that temple can no longer be desecrated. So listen to me. But could it be, could it be that we commit similar offenses to the holiness of God when we offer up our bodies in sacrifice to various lusts and desires? Could it be? Could it be? And does that principle apply to our non-sexual issues as well? The way we eat, the way we sleep, the way we exercise, the idle entertainments that we engage in, the addictions that we tolerate in our own lives. Could it be that all of those things serve to be a defiling of the temple of God? Romans 12.1, Paul is almost done with the book of Romans. And he, he makes this plea. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. That means you can't do it by yourself. But by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Pause. It is not worship to sing loud. It is not worship to raise your hands. It's not a worship to 
fill your car with Caleb or whatever. It's none of those things are worship if you have failed to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. None of those things are worship. In fact, Jesus said, or God said in, in Isaiah chapter 1, he said, who requires this of you to come in here with your, with your filthiness and trample in my courts? Who's requiring that of you? So worship starts with a surrendered heart, a heart that comes before the Lord and says, doesn't matter how loud the music is, doesn't matter how expressive your worship is, worship starts with a heart and a body that is surrendered to the holiness of God in obedience. And he tells us exactly what he means in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and guess what? If you're a Christian, you are. Shouldn't we exercise great care that we do not offend the great God of the temple? Come on, let me hear you this morning. Should we not exercise great care not to offend the great God of the temple? Or to make him feel offended or grieved, as the New Testament puts it. Or quenched, as the New Testament puts it. Or insulted or unwelcome. May God forbid, may God forbid that the people of God should ever do such a thing. May God forbid. This is not, now listen. Some of you are cataloging right now all the ways that you are in this language defiling the temple. And so you've got, you're, you're making in yourself inner vows of not going to do that anymore, not going to do that anymore. I'm going to do better. I'm going to throw that out. I'm going to buy this. I'm going to do whatever. Whatever action you think is going to clean up the temple. But let me tell you something. This is not a matter of trying harder to be better. It is not a matter of trying harder to be better. Listen, Jesus told his own disciples, your spirit may be willing, but your flesh is weak. And I bet you that every single one of you has proven that empirically over the last several years. Your flesh is weak. It's weak. But good news, good news, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. God has given us his Holy Spirit right there to dwell within us, to guide, to convict, to correct, and teach us how to live as pleasing to God if we'll just listen. If we'll just turn our ears towards him and listen. He's available to you to bring you back to your original design in the image of God. But on what basis, on what basis are we to return to our rightful identity uh, as the image of God? On what basis does God's Holy Spirit dwell with us? Well, Paul reminds us simply, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. And let me tell you something. That is probably the most distasteful message to our current culture. To look at somebody and say, who's declaring to be a Christian, say, whoa, 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 you're not your own. You're not your own. That's, that's, what, what are you talking about? I'm not my own. But this is what Paul is saying. And, and, and when we understand what he's saying, that you're not your own, that you're bought with a price, we realize that those are not oppressive words. Man, they're the most powerful and liberating words that could exist. You are not your own. 
What burdens are you carrying right now of performance, of impressing everybody with, with the way that you keep the, the plate spinning? What, what burden of performance would be gone if you just realized you weren't your own? What burden of perfectionism? I got to get my stuff together. What would go out the window if you just acknowledged the fact and really accepted it by faith that you are not your own? It would change everything. It would be revolutionary to our lives if we just believed that. Charles Spurgeon saw the beauty and the magnitude of those five words, you are not your own. And and he says this in his writing. He says, does any man here think it would be a pleasure to be his own? Let me assure him that there is no ruler so tyrannical as self. He that is his own master has a fool and a tyrant to be his Lord. No man ever yet governed himself after the will of the flesh, but what he by degrees found the yoke heavy and the burden crushing. Self is a fierce dictator, a terrible oppressor. Imperious lusts are cruel slave drivers. Let me tell you something. This guy has proved it over and over and over again. And I bet there's some of you who have too. That you don't do a very good job of being in control. But the fact that I am not my own did not come about because I've been merely conquered in some warfare or I've been merely taken out of pity into the custodial care of another. It's a much more elemental thought than that. I am not my own because Scripture tells me I have been bought with a price. This is absolutely repulsive thought. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's a a repulsive image to the modern mind. But Paul is deliberately, without apology, borrowing the image of the slave markets found throughout the Roman world. Hey, you're not your own. You've been bought. He's borrowing that. See, once purchased from those slave markets, a person was utterly utterly relieved of their individuality, their rights. All of those things were gone once they were purchased. They became the sole property and possession of of another. And Paul is saying, you want to know what this life is all about? You are not your own. You've been bought. You've been purchased. Three times in three books, Paul refers to either himself or Epaphras, one of his associates, as the slave of Christ. The idea is that he is obligated, listen carefully, he is obligated to go where Jesus sends him. He is obligated to say what Jesus gives him to say. He's obligated to do what Jesus commands him to do. And as the slave of Christ, he is obligated to suffer what Jesus tells him to suffer. Why is he willing to do this? Sounds like a dumb thing to do. Yeah, Lord, take take total control and, and, and send me to places where, as Paul, I'm going to be shipwrecked and stoned and chased by wild animals and all the things that happened to Paul. Why would anybody agree to that? I'm going to tell you. He's willing to do this because Paul, more than anybody else in the New Testament probably, had been in absolute control of his life. And he made a terrible, miserable mess of it. 
He says this. He says that he had reached the top of every pinnacle placed before him, only to find, as he says in Philippians 3, that it was all rubbish, that it was all dung, it says in some translations. In spite of the loss of his right to chart his own course, he judged slavery to Jesus Christ to be infinitely better than anything else. Infinitely better than anything he could, have, he could have had by avoiding slavery to Jesus Christ. He said, this is better. And this is why. Because Jesus made us an offer to be his slave in those exact terms. Listen, you've heard this before. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me. This is Jesus speaking. Come to me, all you who are labor, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let me tell you something. You may think, well, I'm not going to go where Jesus told me to go. I'm not going to do what Jesus told me to do. I'm not going to suffer what Jesus told me to suffer. Listen to me. You may not know it. Don't be offended by this, but you may be too dumb to realize it. But you are, if you are not a slave of Jesus Christ, you are already a slave of something. You already are. You absolutely are. See, because of sin, we have no choice in the matter of slavery. We will be somebody's slave. Would you rather be a, a, a slave to the world that makes you weary and heavy laden? Or would you rather be the slave of the one who says, come to me and I'll give you rest? Rest was not a commodity freely shared by slave masters. This slave master says, I'll give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And then he describes his slavery. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Never, ever did Jesus deceive us by telling us there was no yoke and that there would be no burden. But he did promise that by grace, they would be easy and light. He promised rest for the souls of weary, heavy laden men and women. And all it cost, all it cost for all this better situation was a life of slavery to Jesus. To say, here I am, Lord, take me, I'm yours. You bought me, you get me, it's all yours. See, Paul, who, who said he was a slave of Christ, we don't find anywhere in the New Testament that he found that he, he saw a downside. In fact, in, in 2 Timothy, he says, I've run my race, I've finished my course. And he says, and now that I've done my course as a slave, there is laid up for me a crown, a crown of righteousness. And he said, and it's also waiting for everyone who loves the appearing of Jesus. So this slavery life has a pretty darn good payoff. When you and I meet Jesus, if we're faithful in our running and faithful in our life of slavery, we too will look at Jesus and say, what a deal. What a deal. Worth every minute. What a deal. But remember, you weren't just bought. You were bought with a price. And that implies great expense. What was the cost? First Peter 1.18 helps us see it. It says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, that generations after generation of sin. He said, not with the perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
See, with the ebbing away of the life of the Son of God on the cross, all of heaven's treasury was emptied to pay your ransom. We even sang about it this morning. Just your ransom was paid with every last bit of wealth that heaven had because it was all vested in Jesus. No greater cost could be calculated. No greater cost could be imagined. And Christ gets what he paid for. He purchased you. And Paul is saying because he purchased you at such great cost, you should not live as though you are still your own. I've said it before, Diet Coke commercial, you do your you is just garbage. It's garbage. Don't do you. Do what Jesus says to do. Paul is saying you shouldn't live as though you're still your own. You have no right anymore to make demands. You have no right to complain and say, oh, God, why is this? I deserve better than this. See, when Jesus purchased you, he purchased all the rights and copyrights. He can do whatever he wants to do. And if you're faithful, you'll never regret it because he knows what he's doing and he's not cruel. Everything he does is good. It's always good and it's never not good. Everything he does. And he hasn't only purchased you. This is really good news. He hasn't only purchased you, but he's also purchasing for himself by his blood a multinational multi-ethnic people for his own glory. If you can just join me for a second, let's bend our ears close to heaven and hear what the choir there is singing this morning. We find the, the, the lyric sheet in Revelation chapter 5. It's where it says, And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals. Listen, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It's a pretty good song, isn't it? Pretty good song. See, God created us in his image. After the fall, he showed us the perfect image of God In Christ, he redeemed us so that we could be restored to the image of God. He placed his Holy Spirit to dwell within us as a temple and to help us. He he purchased us at the high cost of his own blood. What should be our only response to this amazing, glorious, breathtaking truth? What should be our our only response? Paul says at the end of our passage today, so glorify God in your body. So glorify God. God in your body. If we've been created in the image and likeness of God, if we've been made the temple of the Holy Spirit, if Christ has truly purchased us with his blood, we can no longer afford to ask questions about the ways we'll use this body like, is it pleasurable? That is not the way I determine how I'm going to use this body. I don't ask questions like, is it easy? I don't ask questions like, is everybody else doing it? And I don't even ask questions, get this, I don't even ask questions like, is it permissible? As believers, our standard needs to go way up, way up. The only question we should be asking ourselves constantly about the things we do in this body is, does it bring God glory? 
does it bring him glory? So I'm going to stop right there, and we're going to be discussing this next week in part two. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much, God, for ransoming us. Thank you, Lord, that you have saved us from our own sinfulness, that you have brought us out of darkness into your glorious light, Lord God. God, thank you that your love is such to us that you are restoring and returning us to the image of God after your original created design. And Lord, thank you that we have a model, that we have a pattern to know what that looks like in in the incarnated Son of God. And so, Lord, we just ask you right now, Lord God, this is where it gets real, guys. I want everybody to seriously pray what I'm about to pray over you. Pray for yourself what I'm about to pray over you. Lord, we ask you to search us. Search us, Lord. Where have we been grasping for the deed to our own lives, God? Where have we ignored your promptings, your written word, and said, our way, not your way. God, deal with us now. God, convict us. Let us feel the sweet grace of your conviction as we turn to you in repentance and we say, put the cuffs on me and let me be the slave of Christ. Because I know, I know, I'm going to be a slave to something. And your yoke is easy. And your burden is light. And my greatest desire, Lord, is that I would receive from your hands rest for my soul. God, I pray that you would just do that right now. And that you would just help us, Lord, to see you as the author and the finisher of our faith, Lord God. The one who has not just pulled us out of the fire, but the one who is perfecting us for the day of your revelation, Lord. We thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.